Second Corinthians chapter five. That's where we've been. Um, last week we went through the first eight verses, and we'll I think finish the chapter tonight. Just as a reminder, Paul is talking to the Corinthian church about, well, our earthly bodies and our future bodies, and he had a good deal of things to say about the the fact that we were going to be clothed with bodies that are made for eternity, and so. We have a, a beautiful portion of scripture that we've just completed in the fact that Paul has been telling the Corinthian church and, of course, us uh, of these wonderful things that we can expect in our future. And he's going to continue to talk about that. And one of the things that he's going to include in this section that we'll be looking at today has to do with what will take place when we get to heaven, at least for a short season, there will be a time that some people would probably be reluctant to think about as being a positive thing, but really, quite frankly, it is very positive when you look at it with the proper perspective. That has to do with what's known as the Bema Seat or the Judgment Seat of Christ. Now, before we proceed, I want to make sure that we understand there are several judgments that are mentioned in the Word of God. Um, there's a judgment of the nations that will happen at the end of the tribulation period. Uh, there's a judgment of all mankind for the sins of their commission or mission or transgressions or iniquities, uh, whether they were ignorant sins or not. Those sins were judged, but the judgment fell on Jesus at the cross. So that's a judgment of God for the sins of the world, but Jesus is the one who bore the penalty for that judgment. We, as believers, have not been responsible now for our sins that we might commit as long as we confess them. We must realize that the Lord does not want us to sin. It grieves the Holy Spirit. Uh, it quenches the moving of the Holy Spirit in our lives when we do sin. But we emphasize the fact that our sins have indeed been forgiven. When we confess those sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of those sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John reiterates that for us in uh, one of his letters, and it's something that we need to make sure that we understand. Paul agrees with that as well. Paul, in chapter 7 of the book of Romans, spent a good deal of time talking about the battle that exists between our flesh and the spirit. And Paul ended that chapter after having said, I do the things I don't want to do, and I don't do the things I should do. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Paul cries out. And then in chapter 8, verse 1 of chapter 8, he acknowledges the fact that it is Jesus who is able to deliver us from those sins. And he says, there is now therefore no condemnation from God with regard to sins. But we need to understand that the grace of God that allows us to be able to live in a state of perfection eventually, but in dealing with sin, we are constantly having to recognize the fact that in this body, we will indeed fall into the traps of the enemy, and we will sin from time to time, and perhaps more often than we would like to admit, certainly more often than we should. But the very fact of God's grace 
that has been poured out, exceptional grace, way beyond the power of sin. Paul tells us, where sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. But he also gives the warning in that same vein that we are not to take the grace of God for granted. We should not sin deliberately, thinking that it's because of God's grace that we don't have to worry about that. Well, we do have to worry about that. That's why Paul said very, very matter-of-factly, no, God forbid that we ever should have such an attitude as this. We will be perfected eventually. We're not perfect yet. We're being sanctified daily. There's a process that is going on in our lives. And yes, we will fall, we'll, subject, we'll be subjected to uh, the wiles of the enemy. That's why we're to put on the whole armor of God and hold that shield of faith before us to quench those fiery darts that the enemy sends our way. And we're reminded by Peter that the enemy, Satan, walks around looking for those that he can attack, seeking whom he may be able to devour. Uh, his attempt at accusing us is done on a regular basis. But we have an advocate with the Father. He intercedes for us, Jesus, and so does the Holy Spirit, who groans for that perfection that we should be also longing for and expecting. Well, that's all coming along as we serve the Lord, as we continue to uh, seek to do His will and to be obedient. We're to do good works in this life. And those works that we do aren't to earn our salvation, but to show that we are saved. So all of these things play into what Paul is going to be talking about here in this portion that we are going to look at tonight. Verse 9 follows what Paul said in verses 6 through 7. I'd like to read those first. He says in verse 6, we are always confident. That's a pretty strong statement. We're confident. We have the assurance. We are always confident knowing, not something that is uncertain here. We're knowing while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord. Yes, that's exactly true. But, he says, since that we walk by faith and not by sight, we are also confident in this. We're well pleased rather to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. So Paul has this expectation, though yet we are still living in these sinful, vile bodies, we will be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the rapture when he comes with his holy angels and raises up his church to be with him. We will be then given glorified bodies along with all of those who have gone on before us, and we, all of us, will stand in his presence. Now, John tells us that we should want to stand unashamed in his presence. So there's very, very strong indication that we have to deal with this sinful nature until the day we die. And that's exactly what the Word of God tells us. Make no mistake, we are in these mortal bodies subjected to the things that so easily beset us, sins, and they are to be dealt with. But one day we'll all be gathered together in the Lord's presence. 
and there will be no need to worry about sin any longer after that point because there will be no sin, there will be no pain, there will be no sorrow, there will be no sickness, there will be no death. All of that will have been put away, buried. Now, as far as our sins that we may have already committed, that we may even now be committing, or that we may commit in the future. Again, if we confess those sins to God, if we're faithful to seek God's forgiveness, He certainly does indeed cast all of our sins as far as the east is from the west. That is His promise. And that should be a wonderful encouragement to all of us. And that's the direction that Paul here is taking when he starts to talk now about what is going to take place once we get into heaven. Now, as I mentioned earlier, there are judgments of God. And there is going to be a judgment of the believers. But it is not a judgment for sin. It is a judgment that determines our reward. That's what the word bima in the Greek language means. It means a judge that sits on the bima seat is the judge who determines what reward is given to the winner of a race. Typically in the Greek culture of the day of Paul's writing, that would be a, a laurel wreath, for instance, that would be handed to the winner of a race or the winner of a wrestling match. They would receive a prize, a crown. Now, we're given crowns also. Those crowns will be issued, I believe, at this Bema Seat Judgment of Christ. There may be the crown of life, the crown of righteousness, the crowns that are spoken of in the Word of God, the crown of love. Every one of those crowns that are spoken of by the writers of the New Testament Scriptures are crowns that we should be expecting that we might receive will certainly receive the crown of righteousness, according to Paul, because he says, I have fought a good fight, telling Timothy this in the second letter to Timothy. I have run the race, and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. But not for me only, Paul says, but also for all those who love his appearing. So if you are among those who love the appearing of Christ... That is our blessed hope. That is what we long for. That is what we're expecting. That is what will take place eventually when we meet him face to face. And we will, like Paul, experience that gift of the crown of righteousness. But here in chapter 5, verse 9, he speaks about the judgment seat in a particular way that I want to encourage you with, but also remind you that there is room for caution in this passage that we're looking at. Because he says in verse 9, Therefore we make it our aim, whether present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. We want to please our Lord. That should be what motivates us in serving him. We want to please him. It pleases the Lord to save us, and he has but we want to please him in service to him throughout our days. That is what we are wanting to do. And when we do that, we're well-pleasing to him. We're completing in our lives that which he desires. So it says again in verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, the Bema seat of Christ that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad, knowing 
Therefore, the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but we are well known to God, and I also trust are well known to your consciences. Take note again of the fact that he says in verse 10, we must all appear. Every believer must appear before Christ at his judgment seat. Now, the last judgment that I did not yet mention is found in the book of Revelation in chapter 20, and that is known as the great white throne judgment. Those judgments, the great white throne and the Bema seat, are not the same judgment. They are not even close. The one that we just read about in Second Corinthians is a judgment for rewards given to believers. The book of Revelation chapter 20, tri, uh, uh, the uh, Great White Throne Judgment is a judgment uh, against unbelievers who have rejected the claims of Christ, who have died in their sins without having repented and not turning to God. They are going to face a judgment for their sin of rejecting Christ Jesus. You can turn with me, if you would, to chapter 20 of the book of Revelation, and let's read together what uh, John tells us in that great passage with regard to the great white throne judgment. Hopefully it will clear up uh, any questions that any of us might have with regard to the purpose of that particular judgment as it's compared to the judgment that we're reading about in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Revelation chapter 20, beginning with verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away and there was found no place for them. So obviously, the end of time has come. The thousand-year reign of Christ has been completed, and the final war against uh, Satan has been accomplished, and Satan has been cast along with uh, the angels that, and the people that were with him uh, into the fire of hell. He says in verse 12, I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. Now that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Kind of what Paul was saying in Second Corinthians. Actually, it's also mentioned in First Corinthians, and we'll look at that as well. Judging works, but Take note of the fact that it says in this passage, the dead were judged according to their works by the which uh, those were, uh, works were written in the books. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death, dead, then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire, and this is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So that is plain that those who were judged at that great white throne were thrown into the lake of fire because their names were not written in the book. The Lamb's book of life is mentioned in other places in the book of Revelation as well as other places in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. And that book of life is a book that contains all of those whose names are to be included among the righteous. Here, those who are being judged are excluded because their names are not in that book, 
and therefore they're cast into outer darkness, into the lake of fire. And eternal judgment has been meted out for those Christ-rejecting people. Now, they're judged on their works because that proves to them and shows that God's judgment is right, that they were never, ever willing to accept the offer of salvation. Back to Second Corinthians chapter 5, again we read, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive the things done in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that is, again, not a judgment against us with regard to our sin. Our sins have been dealt with at the cross. When Christ said, it is finished, he meant it is finished. The, the complete salvation message is a message that says all sins that we have committed are forgiven. And there is only one sin that separates God from all of mankind. Because he died for all. All sins were taken care of by the Lord. He was judged by the Father. It's that terrible judgment of sin against him only. He is our sacrifice. He is our substitute. And he's taken our sin and exchanged our sin for his righteousness. That's a wonderful exchange. That's a good deal. That's a great deal for us. Not so much for him. But he bore our sin and the sins of all the world. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That is the promise. That is what they all, all of us, have recognized because we came to that place where we acknowledged the need for salvation and the forgiveness of sins and we received that forgiveness when we accepted Christ and his offer of salvation that was given to us freely. For by grace, through faith, you are saved. That not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, lest any man should boast. We have been given eternal life. It is a promise it's a seal that God has placed upon us, the seal of the Holy Spirit. We saw that in the last week's study, talking about the fact that the seal of the Spirit is indeed our great blessing. We have received that guarantee of His sealing us. And that's permanent. It cannot be taken away. It cannot be removed. His Holy Spirit dwells in us. So what again is this judgment? It's a judgment of works, those things that we did in our body. It may also be a judgment of the sins that we did not confess. But what we're dealing with is not condemnation for those of us who are standing before the throne of Christ's judgment here in this particular judgment. It is not a judgment that will determine our eternal destiny. That's already been determined. But it is what determines how much of a reward we do receive. Remember, several parables of Jesus spoke of reward, talked about those servants to whom he gave certain amounts of responsibility. And based upon what they did with that responsibility, he rewarded them accordingly. And those parables are pictures of how things will be done in the kingdom when we are gathered in to observe what he is going to do in order to determine 
those rewards. Chapter 3 of verse of our first Corinthians also talks about this Bema seat of Christ. We looked at it when we were studying First Corinthians uh, several weeks ago, but I want to turn back to it again so that we can all see the fullness of what is being said here uh, by Paul in First Corinthians chapter three, beginning with verse eleven. Paul says there, "For no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus." Now, if anyone builds on this foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, each one's work will become clear, for the day will declare it, because it will be revealed by fire, and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. If anyone's work which he has built on endures, he will receive a reward. Again, this is not a punishment for sins, this is a determination of rewards that you will or will not receive based upon the works that you have done on behalf of your Lord and Savior. He says, if anyone's work is burned, in verse 15, he will suffer loss, but he himself will be saved, yet so is through fire. So you will not lose your salvation at this judgment seat. That's important. The judgment seat of Christ is not to determine our salvation. That's already been determined by the redemption that has been given to us through Christ's death, burial, and resurrection and the promise of His Holy Spirit who has sealed us for that day. Again, the great white throne judgment is a judgment that reveals the fact that they would not be able to enter into God's presence because they did not receive Christ, did not accept the salvation offer, and based on the works that they did against the Lord, they were rejected and will be rejected and will end up in an eternity of condemnation. So those are the different judgments. Don't confuse the two. They are indeed different, and they are for particular purposes. And as we've just described, the one that we will be standing in is for the purpose of receiving rewards or not. Wood, hay, and straw will be burned up. That's of no value to the Lord. And it may be that we intended to do good things for the Lord and didn't do that. Or we did things that we thought were for the Lord, but it wasn't His will that we should do that. There are some things that we might be experiencing in that judgment that will surprise us. Things that will be pleasant. There will be some things that will be a little bit less than pleasant. Those things that will be taken from us uh, those things that will not be uh, able to withstand the judgment will be burned away. So what's left? A glorified body of, of people that are precious in His sight, ready to receive the privilege of becoming His wife. We are the bride of Christ, and He wants His bride to be perfect and without blemish. And anything that would have stained that which He intends to have us become, will be taken away. But what's left is an eternal presence with our Lord. That is wonderful news. That's why he says, though, in verse 11 of Second Corinthians chapter 5, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men. It is something that we should be concerned about. We don't want anyone to perish. That's 
God's will that none should perish. It should be our hope, our desire as well. So we should be praying fervently on a regular basis for the lost. We should be hoping that God would draw them to himself and that they would be indeed saved, especially in these last days as the day approaches. There should be a fervency in prayer for the lost. I'm convinced that something is going on, by the way, in Kentucky, in one of the Christian schools in Kentucky since last Wednesday, and it is still going on today. I mentioned it on Sunday morning, and it's a revival that's taking place among young people. And there are many people who are coming from all over the country now coming to Kentucky to experience what's happening there. And people are confessing their sins. People are turning to the Lord. And in great numbers, there has been a great revival, much repentance that is going on. And I love to hear about those kinds of things, but I would love to see it spread. I want it to go throughout our land. I want it to include us as well. I want it to be something that the Spirit will do throughout this entire region and that the fire of the Holy Spirit would ignite the church and that we would see that kind of experience that they're having down in Kentucky. Uh, pray for that and continue to pray for them that the Lord will continue to move mightily in that especially wonderful thing. Many young people are being saved and converted and encouraged and strengthened and filled with the Spirit of God. It's a wonderful blessing that is happening there. Knowing, therefore, though, in verse 11, that there is terror. That word terror is a word that implies fearfulness. Paul tells us in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, talking about the Jews who will in the last days be saved, talking about the fact that we have been grafted in, but we should never ever think of ourselves as being better than those Jews who have been cut away because he can put them back in. And he says, Behold, in chapter 9 of the book of Romans, both the goodness and severity of our God. Both the goodness and severity. Here in this chapter that we're looking at, the goodness of the Lord is already expressed by the Apostle Paul as he gave us this confidence that we have with regard to the fact that he will come for his church and we will be receiving our glorified bodies, but there's also a sense of terror in what will be expected when we stand before him face to face. Not that it will result in condemnation, because there is now therefore no condemnation by God against those who are in Christ Jesus. But it is something that you need to understand when you stand before him, he is your Lord and he will judge according to his understanding of everything that you have done, whether good or bad. And it might be somewhat embarrassing, but one of the things that I pray for, and I hope that you pray for too, is that I will not stand before him ashamed. I want to stand before him unashamed and receive the words from his lips, well done, good and faithful servant. But the terror of the Lord needs to be conveyed to those who do not believe. And he says, we persuade men, but we are well known of God. And also, I, I trust, Paul says, we are well known in your own consciences. He says that because of what follows in verse 12. Remember, there are some in Corinth who think themselves to be 
more important than even the Apostle Paul or more important than Apollos or more important than Peter. They've puffed themselves up. They think they know all things. Paul said, your knowledge puffs you up, but it's better to love. And they weren't, all of them, getting that. So Paul is here addressing some of those who are in Corinth because of their unwillingness to accept the things that Paul has been declaring. And he says in verse 12, For we do not commend ourselves again to you. I've already done that in a previous letter. But we give you opportunity to boast on our behalf, that you may have an answer for those who boast in appearance and not in heart. Those are the ones who said, Paul's not a very good speaker. And those who are good speakers are much better to listen to. Their appearance is what they were boasting in. Paul is saying, don't boast in your appearance. Boast in that which comes from the heart. He says in verse 13 then, For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. Or if we have a sound mind, it is for you. As far as Paul was concerned, they were those who thought he was either double-minded or he was losing his mind. Paul says elsewhere, I have become a fool for Christ's sake. And I hope that's something that you're willing to say as well. I hope that I am willing to say such things before anyone who would inquire. I want to be known as a fool for Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. I've, I've presented myself, and though some of you think I'm foolish, I'm not foolish. I am serving God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And I'm not boasting in anything except for Jesus Christ and Him crucified. We are not beside ourselves. We're of sound mind. In your eyes, we should be seen that way. For the love of God, the love of Christ, compels us. Some of your translations might say, the love of God constrains us, or even some say restrains. There's similarities in all of those words, but I like the word compel, primarily because it says, I'm kind of pushed by the Lord into this. He is the one who pushes me, not because of my love for Him, but for his love that he has expressed to me. For the love of Christ compels us because we judge thus. Thus is the way that we judge right and wrong and the things that are pertaining to uh, the opinions of those who think Paul to be out of his mind. We judge this because of the love of Christ. The love of Christ compels us to continue proclaiming the good news. And he says that also in this passage. For if the love of Christ compels us, it is because we judge thus, that if one died for all, then all died. And if he died for all, that those who live should live no longer for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. That's the compelling news that he wants to present to all of mankind. Christ died for all, not for just a few, not for just a certain group who call themselves the elect, but for all. That's what the Word of God tells us. And the word all, in this case, certainly does mean for everyone. He died for all. And those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and rose again. Paul says it in a very similar way, and I've quoted this verse as one of my favorite verses found in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, where Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not 
I, but Christ, lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. It's a beautiful passage that Paul presents, and he's saying the same, a similar thing here. He died for all, and those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him. It's living for him that we all must be focusing our entire lives upon, and let it be so from this day forward that every moment of our lives will be filled with a desire to live for Christ. That's very, very needful for every one of us, and it's especially important in these last days. Well, verse 16 continues to say, Therefore, from now on, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we have known Christ according to the flesh, yet now we know him no longer thus. He's raised from the dead. He's a resurrected Savior. And we don't look at men in the same way and women that we once did. We have a different perspective, a different mindset. And so we look at them with a heart that should be the heart of God. As we look at those who are unsaved, we should have the compassion of Christ to seek to convince them that there is a need in their lives for salvation. That's the way that we should be observing those around us now. Therefore, he says in verse 17 again, a second therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. One of my favorite other verses is this one right here. Chapter 5, verse 17, 2 Corinthians. Wouldn't be a bad idea to memorize it. Put it to memory and make sure that you use this statement every moment you think that you are a sinner and you have no hope. Yes, you are a sinner, but you have hope. You have the promise of eternal life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ Jesus, and if you have received Christ as your Lord and your Savior, you are in Christ. You are His because you are sealed with His Spirit. His Spirit dwells in you and you are in Him and He is in you. He is giving you this promise. You're a new creation. Old things are passed away. The old man is still here in this mortal flesh. But as far as God is concerned, from His perspective, it's gone. It's no longer a factor. You are His. You are sealed you are a new creation, and the inner man, that new creation that he's just spoken of, is that which will live forever. And it is no longer a part of who we once were that matters. It is only what we are now that matters. All things have become new indeed. Everything. And again, the word all, in this particular case, means all. It could be said in some cases in the Word of God where you see the word all, where it is not necessarily everybody, everywhere, all. That's not the case here. This phrase implies all believers, every one of us. All things have passed away. All things are new. He has said it. Believe it. Accept it. Receive it. And make sure that you live it out in your life. Verse 19 continues and says, That is, 
that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not imputing their trespasses to them. And he's committed to us that word of reconciliation. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Where? When? At the cross, when he was crucified. The reconciliation that God was doing in that act of putting his own son on the cross and making him to be sin who knew no sin, taking upon himself our sin, that reconciliation was complete. Because when Jesus said, it is finished, that reconciliation was indeed what he had finished, what he had accomplished on the cross. And he's committed that reconciliation, that word of reconciliation to us. He's given that responsibility to us to tell others. That is our work that he is calling us to. In this case, that's one of the works that we should be involved in. To live out our lives in such a way as to allow people to see the light through the things that we do. Sometimes the things that we say. Certainly how we live our lives. Where we go. How we do things and what we do is very, very important in that work of reconciliation. Finally, he says in verse 21, For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, which is what I just said, that he might be, or rather that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made Jesus to be sin so that we could become righteous before God. How much more plain can it be than this? We have a righteous standing before God because of what Christ did on the cross. Again, it's an exchange. Our sin given to him, his righteousness given to us. He clothed us with his righteousness. He filled us with his spirit. He's promised us eternal life. And it's a seal of the spirit of God that ensures that all of those things are true now in us. What a great blessing this passage is. What a great, wonderful promise that we have before us. Yes, we will face the judgment seat of Christ. But don't fear that judgment with regard to your eternal life. That's a given. That is certain. That will not be taken away. You should only be concerned about that judgment if you're living in sin. If you're dealing with sin in a way that is not proper, if you're not confessing that sin, then you have reason to worry. But not to lose your salvation, but you won't receive much of a reward if you're continuing in that sin. God doesn't want you to sin, and you should not want to sin. But when you do sin, again, remember, you've got this promise from the Word of God. Confessing it is what's necessary. Believing that He is willing to forgive you is absolutely important and required of you is nothing more than confession and repentance, turning away from that sin. And even if you do fall into it again, you can trust that He will forgive you more than seven times, more than 70 times seven. He's faithful and just to forgive you of all your sins every one of them, 
every time you confess them. That doesn't mean you should think that sinning is not so much of an issue. It is a great issue as far as God is concerned. Sin quenches the Spirit in you. It grieves the Holy Spirit for you and us, all of us, when we do fall into sin and continue to embrace those sins. But when we turn from those sins with true repentance, that is where God is glorified. And that is where you receive great reward in that day. I'm looking forward to that day of judgment. I hope you are too. Because that day of judgment, though it may be somewhat embarrassing for some of us, it will be a day of glory when we have whatever remains to stand in His presence with the gold and the silver and the gems that are resulting from that judgment as He purifies us to be His wife. God bless you all. And let us be faithful in serving Him until He does come for us. And in that day, let us stand unashamed. Amen.